Welcome back to the Locust Grove Podcast. You are listening to our Easter Sunday worship service where we celebrate the resurrection through the reading, teaching, and singing of God's Word. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by this special service. That first chorus that we sang is one of the oldest church hymns that we have on record. And as we were singing it, uh, I felt a great joy knowing that we were singing about the resurrection that had solidified the faith that has been passed down once and for all to the saints. And that is exactly why we are here this morning celebrating is because of the resurrection of Jesus. If you're new with us this morning, we are nearing the end of a lengthy study through the Gospel of John. We have been on this journey through Jesus' life and ministry with John and the other disciples uh, now for uh, about a year and a half in total with taking some breaks uh, in between. But it's really been quite the journey through this Gospel. And I think that it's important this morning to begin to put this journey in perspective today as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Now, the reality is this journey, this entire story that we've been studying over the last several months, it's really not that important if the resurrection doesn't happen, right? The resurrection is really the thing that validates the rest of the story. And so the rest of the story is only significant because of uh, the fact of the resurrection that's presented to us in our text this morning, which will be uh, John chapter 19, we'll begin in verse 38, we'll be working through John chapter 20, verse 18 this morning. If you want to find your places, we'll, we'll be picking up in John's gospel in just a moment. And so the rest of the story really isn't important if this resurrection doesn't happen, But it's also really easy for us sometimes to miss the value of the rest of the story by only looking at the resurrection, right? The rest of the story uh, gives us a lot of insight into the power of the resurrection, the significance of the resurrection, also why the resurrection is very personally significant for each one of us. You see, the fact of the matter is we need the entire story, We needed the entire gospel account of John that we have been studying. We needed it all, right? The the virgin birth was necessary. The sinless life of Christ was necessary. The crucifixion of Christ was certainly necessary. And without a doubt, the resurrection of Christ was necessary in order for any one of us to have any hope of salvation. You see, the virgin birth was necessary because the virgin birth uh, delivered to us Jesus as 100% God and 100% man. Without the virgin birth, that is not possible. That's why the virgin birth is so significant. But without the sinless life of Christ, there is no perfect sacrifice, right? If Christ cannot live a sinless life, then there is no spotless lamb to be slain. And so the sinless life gives us this perfect sacrifice. Of course, the crucifixion is significant because at the crucifixion, the wrath of God against sin was satisfied. But we really must make this more personal because it's not as if God's wrath is just some obscure thing. Right? It's not as if we are uh, somehow displaced from God's wrath. No, from the moment of our birth, we are rebels against God because of Adam's sin. 
right? We have inherited sin. And because we are in sin, we are the intended recipients, listen, of God's wrath. That's why all of this is so necessary. God did not desire that His people be the intended recipients of His wrath. And so something had to be done, right? Some sacrifice had to be made. And so the wrath of God isn't just something that's out there. Listen to me this morning, friend. If you are not in Christ, the wrath of God is upon you. That's it. Right? One day, God will deliver His wrath upon all creation that is not found in Christ. And if it was not for Christ, that would be the future of all of us. But now the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ took the wrath of God so that you and I did not have to take it. And so if you're wondering what does the wrath of God look like, I can tell you exactly what it looks like. All you have to do is flip back maybe a page or look back up a couple of verses in the Gospel of John. The wrath of God looks like a crown of thorns upon the, son of his, upon the head of His Son. The wrath of God looks like the mocking and the scourging, the beating of His Son Jesus. The wrath of God looks like a nail in each hand, a nail in His feet. The wrath of God looks like a spear in the side of His Son Jesus. And yet that's only a picture of the physical wrath of God. That's not to mention the spiritual wrath of God that Jesus experienced as He became our sin and He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what He was saying? Why have you turned your back on me? And why would God have to turn His back on His own Son? Because His own Son became sin and God could not look upon sin. The only thing God can do with sin is unleash His wrath. And so three days ago, some 2,000 years ago, God unleashed His wrath on His Son so that you and I might be spared from that wrath. And so the crucifixion satisfies the wrath of God, but the resurrection, of course, is also significant. The story doesn't end at the cross. The story doesn't end with God's wrath being satisfied in His Son. No. The resurrection happens and the resurrection is necessary because not only has God's wrath now been poured out against sin, but now in the resurrection we see that the curse of sin has been defeated. You know what Paul told the Romans? He told the Romans that the wages of sin are death. Right? The, the cost of sin, the penalty of sin is death. And so at the cross, the wrath of God was dealt with, but at the empty tomb, the penalty of that sin was fully and finally defeated in the resurrection of Jesus. And we've seen all of this play out through our study of this gospel. And now this morning, we come to this final scene, if you will. It's the resurrection scene. And I want to set the stage for where we're going this morning by picking up really where we left off last week. And if you weren't with us, that's okay. We were studying the crucifixion of Jesus, and we ended by considering the final words of Jesus on the cross. Those final words were three very simple but significant words. Three words in English, that is, it is finished. It is finished. In that moment, Christ made a public declaration that He had accomplished the work that He came to do. 
What He had set out to do was now finished. And what did He come to do? Listen, Jesus came in order to eradicate sin by giving up His own life. And that's exactly what He did on the cross of Calvary. And even before we get to the empty tomb, we can already have this incredible confidence that we can cling to the cross because our Savior, Jesus Christ, bled. And in, his, in, the, in the shedding of His blood, grace found a way to bring death to an end. Now, while this is all true, we will discover in our text this morning that though the work of atonement was indeed finished on the cross, the story was not over. I would recall your attention to Judas. Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, if you remember earlier in the Gospel of John. This would have been on Thursday night in Jesus' last week on this earth. <clears throat> Judas leaves the upper room. And if you remember, he leaves the upper room for a very specific reason. He leaves the upper room in order to betray Jesus. And again, it's important to remember he didn't leave the upper room until Jesus said, go and do what you must do and do it quickly, right? If you remember back as we were studying that passage, it's a reminder of His sovereignty. Jesus was in complete control over every event leading up to His crucifixion, right? All of this was falling under God's authority and in His perfect plan. But do you remember what John said when Judas left the upper room? He says that Judas left and it was not. Now again, if you've been with us, you've heard me make this point several times and it's so significant in the Gospel of John. When John talks about day and night, he's not talking about uh, chronological day and night. Though it may actually be day, it may be physically day and it may be physically night. John's intention is not to let us know what time of day it is. John's intention is to let us know of the spiritual condition of things. And so when Judas leaves the upper room, what John is saying is that one of Jesus' own one of the ones that has followed him every day for three and a half years, saw the water turned into wine, saw the thousands of people fed, saw the blind healed, heard all of the teachings of Jesus, has now went out from the upper room, has went out from this last supper with Jesus, and has traded, betrayed his Savior in pursuit of treasure. And what does John say? It was night. It was as spiritually dark as it might have ever been. That one of Jesus' own would leave His side and hand Him over to be crucified on a criminal's cross. But the reason John does this, and the reason it's important, I think, for us to draw our attention back to what John was saying about it being night, about it being dark when, when Judas leaves the upper room, is because John wants us to see that now in this passage, the empty tomb serves as a reminder that the dawn of redemption has brought an end to the night. John is saying when Judas left the upper room, it was as spiritually dark as you could possibly imagine. But when Mary and then when John and Peter find the empty tomb, it is a reminder that the night is over and that dawn is breaking. And so this morning as we study this passage, as we reflect on the finished work of Christ, we are able to sing hallelujah. It is finished. He has overcome. I trade all for the new. I trade lies for the truth. 
I throw off these old chains and hold fast unto you. I cling to the cross where my Savior bled, where grace found a way to bring death to an end, a beautiful ransom. When love paid my debt, so I'll sing your praise all of my days. Your blood flowing down like oceans of grace. My sins swept away, I'm brought back to life. Here in the finished work of Christ. You came out of the grave. You came bursting to life. You shattered the darkness with your glorious light. In this battle for us, you ran to the fight with mercy and grace in your arms open wide. The dawn of redemption, put it into the night. So I'll sing your praise all of my days. Your blood flowing down like oceans of grace. My sins swept away. I'm brought back to life here in the finished work of Christ. So I'll sing your praise with all of my heart. You buried my past so my future could start. I kneel at the cross. I'm held in your light here in the finished work of Christ. Hallelujah, hallelujah, it is finished, you have of grace. My sins swept away. I'm brought back to life here in the finished work of Christ. So I'll sing your praise with all of my heart. You buried my past so my future could start. I kneel at the cross. I'm held in your light here in the finished work of Christ. I kneel at the cross, I'm held in your light, here in the finished work of Christ. I invite you to join with me in reading John chapter 19. Again, we'll begin in verse 38. Read all the way down through verse 18 of chapter 20. John writes in chapter 19 verse 38, And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, 
being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus, and wound it in linen clothes, with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. <clears throat> Excuse me, there laid they Jesus therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. The first day of the week cometh, Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth and come, cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid Him. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter, following him, and went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also the other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the Scriptures, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulchre, and seeth two angels in white, sitting the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabbanah, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that He had spoken these things unto her. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for Your Word this morning. We are thankful for the truth that it conveys because we believe, just as Your Son Jesus said, that we do not live by bread alone but by every word that passes from Your mouth. And so as we consider it this morning, Lord, we confess that this indeed is Your Word, that it is complete, that it is without error, that it is 100% true. We have seen the truth of this Word throughout history be validated and verified and in no greater way than through the resurrection of Your Son, Jesus. So as we consider this text this morning, Lord, what we know not, please teach us. What we are not, please make us, and what we have not, please give us, that we might be more like your Son Jesus, more faithful to His mission for us, and that we might see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask all of this in the name of your precious Son Jesus. Amen. 
You see, what we have in this text before us this morning is really an unrivaled event in history. It's unrivaled as the most radical event in history. You see, this resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, make no mistake, it changed everything. I think it's safe to say that it radically changed everything. To say something is radically changed means that an extreme or a substantial change has occurred in the existing system. And that's exactly what happened at the resurrection. This substantial, radical, uh, extreme change happened to the existing system of this world. Now listen, a radical event is an event that takes the current system and it flips it upside down. It flips it on its head, if you will. Something that, that, that radically changes all we know in an instant. And in an instant... Everything was radically changed. Everything the disciples thought they knew, everything uh, they knew was radically changed. You know, the Apostle Paul makes the case, this same kind of case, to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's dealing with this heresy that has made its way into the church. And the heresy is simply that Christ wasn't raised from the dead. Right? This is happening in the Corinth church. Often when I talk about the letter to the Corinthians, I tell churches that, listen, if you think your church is in bad shape, just read Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Right? They, they, they had it messed up pretty bad. And so they've got this heresy circulating within the church that Christ didn't rise from the dead. And even if He did rise from the dead, that it didn't really matter that He rose from the dead. And so Paul says in effect to them, not so fast, right? He says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with telling the Corinthians that their faith is worthless. He takes it one step further, and a step scarier, if you will. He says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, you are still in your sins. And that's it. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, there is no hope. There's no hope of salvation. There's no hope of a restored relationship with God. Paul hits the nail on the head. If the resurrection did not happen, then our sins cannot be forgiven. That's how radical this resurrection is. If the resurrection did not happen, we, you and I, would still be in sin. And everything that you and I believe about God everything we believe about Jesus, everything we believe and understand about salvation would be empty and meaningless. The resurrection has brought profound change in our faith. Not just in our faith though. The resurrection brought profound change in our purpose. And even more eternally significant, the resurrection brought a profound change in our standing before God. Without the resurrection, each of us stand before God, but the problem is we stand guilty before God. And make no mistake this morning, friends, every one of us will one day stand before the face of God. And you will either stand guilty or you will stand in Jesus. Those are the two options. You're not going to stand on your works. You're not, listen, if you die tonight, you're not going to stand before God and say, hey, I was at Locust Grove yesterday for Easter. Remember that. No, God cares about one thing and one thing only when you stand before Him. Does He see His Son, Jesus? Not your church attendance. 
not your good works. He's looking for Jesus. Because your good works did not pay the penalty of your sin. Your church attendance did not pay the penalty of your sin. But God's Son, Jesus Christ, paid the penalty of your sin. Listen, in verses 38 and 39, we get our first clue that this passage is really about radical change. Notice, John includes a detail about each of these men, and it really reveals a change in their attitudes, right? A change in their perspective. Joseph of Arimathea, he tells us he had been a secret disciple, but now he's publicly identifying himself with Jesus, so much so that he's asking for the body of Jesus. But then we're reintroduced to a man that we were introduced to way back in John chapter 3. Nicodemus, one of the religious elite. Right? The top of the class, if you will. And in chapter 3, we learn that, again, John, using this terminology, day and night and darkness and light, we were told in chapter 3 that Nicodemus came to Jesus in the darkness. Right? Under the cover of darkness that he might not be recognized. And now, here he is, openly, in the daylight, working with Joseph of Arimathea to respect the body of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, it doesn't take much of an imagination to understand the potential danger in identifying with someone who has just been executed for sedition and blasphemy. Those were the charges leveled against Jesus. That was what ultimately led to His crucifixion. And so these two men were not doing this in a safe context. Their lives were probably in danger. They would have been wise to think that their lives were in danger for making this public identification with Jesus. But at the very least, even if you don't believe that their lives were in danger, at the very least, their their reputations were on the line. And in this ancient culture, your reputation was as good as money. Your reputation got you things. It got you places. So at the very least, these two men who had been secretly following Jesus or secretly learning of Jesus are now publicly identifying with Jesus. And so what change took place in these men? What prompted such courage? Now back in chapter 12 of this gospel, John documents secret disciples who were at that time afraid to follow Jesus. And in the same chapter, he says this over in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say unto you, or truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But listen, if it dies, it produces much fruit. So now you say, what in the world does a grain of wheat have to do with these two men who were secretly following Jesus, now publicly following Jesus? What's the point? The point is this. Here's what John wants you and I to see. These two men are the first fruits of the great harvest that will come from Jesus' death. When Jesus was talking to His disciples immediately after His conversation with the woman at the well, and He said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. These two men represent the first fruits of that plentiful harvest. They represent the reaping of fruit that will be produced by the death of the grain. Right By the death of the Son of God, these fruits will be reaped. But they also serve as a signal to us as the readers of this gospel that changes are coming and that the most radical change is near. But I want you to consider a second change in this passage. 
Once Jesus laid down His life, the persecution and affliction, right, they were over. For, for those hours leading up to His death, it was this constant persecution. It was this constant affliction towards Jesus. He paid our debt to sin. And then He fully received this righteous wrath of God because of our sin. And we saw just a moment ago, or we were reminded just a moment ago, that He said it was finished, right? His suffering was complete. And then when we get to verses 40 and 42 of chapter 19, notice how much differently Jesus' body is treated now than it was just a few hours before His death. Before His death, it's beaten. Before His death, He's mocked. He's crowned with this crown of thorns. But now, in verses 40 and 42, He's no longer abused as the sacrificial lamb because the lamb has been sacrificed. He is now treated with the respect as the only begotten Son of God, with respect as the true King of Israel. But now we come to the discovery of this empty tomb in verse 2 of chapter 20. We see that Mary... Wrongly, of course, assumes that the body of Jesus has been stolen or moved. But then Peter and John, again, John doesn't refer to himself ever by name in his gospel. It's, uh, in this case, it's the other disciple. Uh, sometimes it's the disciple that Jesus loved, but he's talking about himself. Peter and John, they, they, they come to the tomb. John, and John does something very important, I think. As soon as he gets to the tomb, he draws our attention in verse 7 to the grave clothes. Now again, this isn't the first time that grave clothes have been mentioned in John's Gospel. And so he's doing this strategically. He also mentions grave clothes in chapter 11 at the tomb of Lazarus. Now if you remember, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus comes out of the tomb, but he comes out of the tomb and he's still in his grave clothes, right? He's still wrapped in linen cloths. And we're not given a ton of details about the resurrection of Lazarus or what happens after the resurrection of Lazarus, um, for Lazarus in particular. particular. But we do have enough details to understand that Lazarus is going to die again, right? He's going to face another physical death, right? He's not taking off his grave clothes because he's still going to die. He's going to need those grave clothes again. But what John is doing here by drawing our attention to the grave clothes of Jesus one more time is reminding us, is telling us that though Lazarus would once again need his grave clothes, Jesus will never again need his. And so then this begs the question. Of course, Peter, uh, John is obviously a track star compared to Peter. He beats Peter to the tomb long enough to kneel down and to see the clothes. Peter eventually gets there, and as we would expect out of Peter, he doesn't hesitate, he just rushes into the tomb, right? And then John joins him in the tomb, and then we have to wonder, what exactly is going through John's mind when he enters the tomb? Now he gives us some insight. What does he say? He says that when he enters the tomb, he believes. But what does John believe? I think it's very simply this. In verses 8 through 10, we learn that when John enters the empty tomb of Jesus, he believes that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now listen, he doesn't completely understand it still. All of the pieces are not yet fit together. They will be later, but he believes. And so yes, we can only wonder what was going through John's mind as he stands in this empty tomb. There lays the grave clothes of the Messiah, but no Messiah. 
And I have to think as John stood there with Peter in that tomb that he must have thought, He who is mighty has indeed done a great thing. shown to those who sit in death's shadow. Sun on high, pierce the night, born was the cornerstone. Unto us a son is given, unto us a child is born. He who is mighty has done a great thing. Taken on flesh, conquered death's sting, shattered the darkness and lifted our shame. Holy is his name. Oh, the freedom our Savior won. Of sin has been broken. Once a slave, now by grace, no more condemnation. Unto us a son is given, unto us a child is born. He who is mighty has done a great thing, taken on flesh. Conquer destiny, shattered the darkness and lifted our shame. Holy is his name. Holy is his name. Now my soul magnifies the Lord. I rejoice in the God who saves. I will trust. In verses 14 through 16, we are reminded that Jesus is indeed the Good Shepherd and that His sheep, that He knows His sheep by name and that when He calls them by name, they respond. You see what happens there in verses 14 through 16 is that Mary doesn't recognize who Jesus is, but when she does hear the voice of the shepherd calling her name, she understands it's Him. 
And John tells us that she's clinging to him, right? Not, not wanting him to leave again. Not wanting to leave his side. And he essentially tells her, listen Mary, don't worry, right? Don't, don't hold on to me. I'm, I'm, I'm not leaving for good, right? I've not yet ascended to my rightful spot at the Father's side. But then notice what happened. He gives Mary a charge. He gives her a charge to go and tell his disciples that he's alive and that he will soon be returning to his heavenly position. And so again, this passage is all about change, right? The change in Joseph and Nicodemus from secret disciples to open followers of Jesus. The, the change in the treatment of Jesus from affliction to affection and adoration. The, the change in the grave from full to empty. The change in John as he looks and believes in this empty tomb that the resurrection has indeed happen, happened. And of course now the change in Mary from weeping to rejoicing. You know, we might think of all of these changes as, as sort of like aftershocks, right? The earth-shaking change, the earthquake, if you will, is the resurrection. It's the thing that changes the entire context. When Jesus rises from the dead, the, the existing system is irrevocably altered. It'll never be the same. But I want us to see two final things in this passage this morning. I want us to see radical change in the power of death, but also, we can't miss it, I want us to see the radical change in position that happens, especially for the disciples. Listen, birth and death are common human experiences. People come from different backgrounds, from different countries, from different walks of life. People have different political views, have different world views. Some people are rich, some people are poor. right? Some people have big families, no families, small families. But something that every single one of us, every single person, every nation has in common is this. Birth and death. They're simply unavoidable. And then there's human life. That span of time between the womb and the tomb. God describes it through the psalmist in Psalm 39.5 as a vapor. He describes life as a vapor. We're really like the grass in our backyards, aren't we? Green and lush and healthy one day, withered and dying the next. And that really is Mary's mindset when she comes up on the tomb on this Easter morning. It's, it's her mindset when Jesus dies, right? She goes looking for His body, right? She's looking for the part of Jesus that is left when His life is seemingly extinguished. And upon finding the body gone, her report to the disciples is essentially, right, in verse 2 of chapter 20, it's essentially this, I didn't see His body, right? I looked in and I did not see His body there. But then look at, look at the change that happens. Look at what she says in verse 18. She doesn't say, I've seen the Lord's body. No, she says, I have seen the Lord. Listen church, Jesus conquered death. He stared into death's cold, cruel eyes and with infinite power, He, declared, he, he defeated death, rendering death completely powerless. Listen, prior to the resurrection of Jesus, every person that walked this earth there's no, there's no more clear way to put it. Every person that walked this earth walked with an executioner's blade over his or her neck. Never sure when death might strike. But we have to understand the resurrection is a reminder that Jesus has disarmed death. He showed us what awaits those who are His once they pass from this life. 
And if you are in Christ, there's no longer an executioner's blade above your neck because your life is secure in Christ. The writer of Hebrews said that through His death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power over death. Right, Speaking of the devil and delivered all those, Hebrews 2.15, who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. If you are in Christ, you do not have to fear death. And here's what the fear of death does. It causes us to minimize the effects of aging, doesn't it? We see this all across our culture. We're told to to be younger, to eat healthier, to color your hair, and to try to remove wrinkles. We, We don't want to face the truth. We're aging. And every single day brings every single one of us closer to the grave. And all we try to do is cosmetically push death further into the future. It's almost as if we believe if we ignore death, maybe it will ignore us. But the fear of death does something far more dangerous. The fear of death chains our hopes and dreams to the earthly desires of this life. The fear of death tells you to live for today because tomorrow is not guaranteed. Right, it's that uh, millennial, that millennial acronym, YOLO. You only live once, right? So do it now. Whatever you want to do, do it now. That's the fear of death speaking. That's this, that's this reality that we can only push death off for so long. And if Jesus had not conquered death, we might as well spend all of our energy and all of our time eating, drinking, and being merry. For tomorrow we might die. But because Jesus has conquered death, we can live not for today and not just for tomorrow, but for the next life, for eternal life, not for this temporary life that is but a vapor. Listen, we are participants in Jesus' resurrection and our priorities should reflect that truth. I mentioned this this morning if you were at the sunrise service. Paul said to the church in Colossae, what is true of Christ is true of you. And if Christ has been raised from the dead and you are in Christ, then that will be true of you. And if that's true of you, your priorities in this life ought to reflect a resurrection perspective on this life. And so here is exactly why materialism and Christianity cannot peacefully coexist. You see, materialism is pursuing happiness by accumulating stuff in this life. But Christianity is giving up stuff in this life to pursue happiness in Jesus. You see, materialism is the binding that death uses. It's the chains that death uses to hold us to this world, to chain us to this world. And and so often we just try to insulate ourselves from eternity by just mounting up, mounding and mounding and piling and piling more and more treasures up around us. But for us as Christians, the resurrection of Jesus brings a revolutionary change to our perspective. We don't live for what is seen, but we live for what is unseen. Because Jesus conquered death and lives forevermore, death no longer has a claim on us. We are free. We are free indeed to live for what lasts. We're able to live with open hands, giving up everything in this life because we are guaranteed another greater eternal life with our King Jesus. 
And so as a result, I encourage you this morning to rejoice with us in the name that reigns above all others. Jesus Christ, the King above all kings. Listen, He was buried in shame, but now He is risen in power and the stone has been rolled away. There is a king seated among us. Let every heart receive him now. Where there is praise, he will inhabit. There will be grace and mercy all around. Every trophy will be laid down at his feet. There is a name that reigns above all others. Jesus Christ, the King above all kings. Unto the Lamb, honor and glory Worthy is he who overcame, buried in shame, risen in power. He is alive, the stone is rolled away. All I worship will belong to him forever. Death is conquered. And our Savior holds the keys. There is a name that reigns above all others. Jesus Christ, the King above all kings. It won't be long. We will behold Him. And every tear he'll wipe away. We'll be at home. The war will be over. Soon we will meet our Savior face to face. Every burden will be lifted in his presence. Every trophy be laid down at his feet. There is a name that reigns above all others. Jesus Christ, the King above all kings. All I worship will belong to you It's going to be hard to land this plane after that.
You know, there are 108 times in the Gospel of John that Jesus refers to God as Father. There are 27 times He says, My Father. 71 times He says, The Father. But there's only one time that He refers to God as the disciple's Father. He does that in verse 17 of chapter 20 of our text. As He passes the message to the disciples through Mary, He tells her to say that He is ascending to my Father and your Father. It's the only time in John's Gospel that He calls the disciples His brothers. You see, this is part of this radical change that happens at the tomb. It's, it's not just a radical change in, um, in the scenery. It's not just a radical change when it comes to some obscure view of death. It's actually a radical change in position of these disciples. When Jesus rises from the dead, the position of His disciples is radically altered. They're no longer cut off from God. They're no longer enemies, no longer dead in trespasses and sins. They are family members. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ for their sin and the divine acceptance of that sacrifice demonstrated through the resurrection ushers them into this new family with God as their father and Jesus as their brother. And here's the reality. Only when God does a work in our hearts, granting us the gift of faith, do we become His children. It's the gift of faith that allows us to become His children. If you read any of the biographies of Spurgeon, you'll learn that Spurgeon had every opportunity in the world to know Jesus and to believe in Jesus, coming from a line of Christian ministers. And yet Spurgeon realized that all he had was an intellectual knowledge of Jesus. He knew intellectually that Jesus was crucified. He knew that intellectually that Jesus was raised from the dead. And if you read Spurgeon's biography, it's amazing. He spent years praying that God would give him the gift of faith. Knowing everything seemingly there was to know, he still knew that he did not have saving faith. Some have said Spurgeon labored in prayer. And so one day in his grace, God gives Spurgeon the gift of faith. And he was saved. From our perspective, we must believe on Jesus Christ to become part of God's family. But that's not all that's needed to happen. Jesus had to do something. He had to pay for our sin so that we could be declared righteous. His sacrifice had to be accepted by God so that you and I could be forgiven. So that's why after He rose from the dead, His first words to the disciples through the lips of Mary were that they were now by faith sons of God and brothers of His. So let's think about some of the promises that become ours as children of God. There's the promise of inheritance, right? The immeasurable riches of God are eternally ours, right? The, the, we, 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 we should be willing to, to die poor if it's what God desires, right? Knowing that there's this eternal treasure chest that awaits us upon entrance into our Father's house. But it's not just the promise of inheritance, it's also the promise of love. We are now God's children. And so regardless of what kind of earthly father you have or that you had, if you're in Christ, you now have a perfect father. His love for you will not ebb and flow. It will not be based on his emotions. His treatment of you will not be affected by your performance. He will love you enough to chasten you, right? To punish you when you sin. But not because he's vindictive, but because you're his child and he wants what is best for you. And so there is the promise of this true and perfect love, but there's also the promise of acceptance. 
Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father brings us assurance that we will be accepted into the Father's house. You see, God has accepted Jesus, and so He will accept those who are in Jesus. Here's what I want you to see. Who these disciples are is bound up totally in who they have become in Christ. It's not who they were before Christ. It's not who they were before the resurrection. It is now who they are in Christ. No longer are they merely sons and descendants of Adam. They are now sons of God. And their validation will not come from other people, but it has come from what Jesus revealed to them about their new position, their new identity, a new identity in Christ as members of God's family. It radically changes every area of life. For example, we we call one another oftentimes in the church brother and sister because we relate to one another as members of God's family. And that relationship should affect our prayer lives. It should affect how we give. It should affect how we care for others. But listen, it wasn't just the church in Corinth that was arguing against the importance of the resurrection or the significance about the resurrection being a, a vital point. People today still argue that, of course, it didn't happen, but also argue that it's trivial whether or not it did. But listen, church, the resurrection of Jesus is not trivial. The resurrection of Jesus is central to our faith. Marcus Borg, in speaking against the essential nature of the resurrection, said this, For me it is irrelevant whether or not the tomb was empty. Whether Easter involves something remarkable happening to the physical body of Jesus is irrelevant, he says. My argument is not that we know the tomb was not empty or that nothing happened to the body, but simply that it doesn't matter. The Apostle Paul would disagree with Mr. Borg. You see, we must believe that the tomb was empty because Jesus rose from the dead. He was vindicated by the Father. He secured our salvation and He brought us into the family of God. Paul told the Romans in Romans 10, 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul said it's essential that you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that you believe in your heart. What? that God raised Him from the dead. The empty tomb is essential. Without the resurrection, church, there is no gospel. The gospel is good news. And the best part of the good news is that Jesus won. Death was defeated and eternal life is ours through Him. And so I stand before you this morning and I submit that Jesus Christ is indeed worthy. I believe that Scripture from Genesis to Revelation from beginning to end, teaches that Jesus Christ is worthy. The facts are established. The future is settled. He will reign forevermore. However, your eternity may not be settled. It may still be up in the air. You see, we will not reign with Jesus in eternity until we have decided here and now that He is worthy of us laying down our lives and turning from our sin to trust in Him. And so as Eddie and the choir lead us in our invitation, I want to ask you a very personal question. Do you believe that this Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and resurrected, is worthy of your life? Maybe for some of you, you have confessed with your mouth and you have believed in your heart that Jesus is Lord, but you still find yourself struggling. You know God desires to get more out of you, but you have just been pushing back, right? Unwilling to follow His call on your life. Unwilling to lay down the the materialism of this world for full pursuit of His plan for your life. 
If that's you, you have to ask yourself the same question. Is He worthy of your time? Is He worthy of your talent? Is He worthy of your treasures? Or are you still going to try to withhold the areas of your life that He's been working to reform and repurpose? And so as we sing this song, Is He Worthy? We'll give a very clear answer The answer that the Bible gives that yes, He indeed is worthy. But the question for you this morning is what do you believe? What do you confess with your mouth? What do you believe in your heart? Eternity hangs in the balance. Jesus Christ, the resurrected King of kings and Lord of lords, is indeed worthy of all of our praise. He is worthy to satisfy every need we could possibly have. And He is worthy and capable of extending eternal life in the presence of His Father to us. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. Do you know that all the dark will stop the light from getting the ground. 
eternally grateful that we can proclaim with all of our hearts that your son Jesus Christ is indeed worthy. And so even now, Lord, would you give the gift of faith for anyone who is unsure of their eternity, for anyone who may sense that that executioner's blade still lingers above them, for anyone who knows beyond the shadow of a doubt that they are still in their sin, Lord, would You give the gift of faith. May they believe with their hearts and confess with their mouths that Your Son Jesus is indeed been risen from the grave. And Lord, would You remind each one of us through the example of Joseph of Arimathea that Secret followers of Jesus cannot, should not exist. That our faith is meant to be a public faith. That our faith is meant to have action, to have legs, that it's to be proclaimed among our neighbors and the nations. And so if there is one here who has received the gift of faith, may they not leave here this morning with that faith still a secret. But may they proclaim it among your people. May the fruit of repentance be evident. But even for those, Lord, who have already found themselves in you, but are yet still struggling with materialism, putting other things before your Son Jesus, Lord, would you lead us to give up all that we have and all that we are in full pursuit of the purpose and the mission that You have given us to be the hands and feet of Your Son Jesus, to take this good news of the empty tomb to all that we will come in contact with. And Lord, we give You the honor and the glory for everything that has been said and done here. We, of course, give You the honor and the glory for the empty tomb. And now we rest and we work in our resurrected Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. In Him, Lord, we are found. In Him, we have eternal life. In Him we have been reunited to You as our Father. And now, Lord, we seek to love You, to serve You, and to glorify Your name with our lives. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Locust Grove Podcast. We're so glad you were able to join us today. We hope that you were indeed challenged and encouraged by what you heard. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast, regardless of what platform you're listening to it on. And do us a favor and share the podcast as well. We hope that you'll join us again next week as we continue to study God's Word.